0: Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of Outlaw Country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. System of a Down's classic Rick Rubin produced album, Toxicity, turns 20 this year. Released in 2001, one week before 9-11, the politically charged and wildly bizarre nature of Toxicity provided the perfect soundtrack for a world descending into chaos. Serge Tonkian, the lead singer of System, is no stranger to conflict. His family's Armenian and migrated to LA from Lebanon to escape a civil war when Serge was seven years old. In Los Angeles, he grew up in a tight-knit Armenian community along with the rest of his younger System bandmates. As Serge's star began to rise in the late 90s, his activism intensified. And to this day, he continues to raise awareness around the Armenian genocide and the impact of corporate greed. Last month, he released the documentary Truth to Power, which documents the intersection of Serge's work as a musician and an activist. Today, we'll hear Rick Rubin talk to his good friend Serge about how hearing bombs drop outside his childhood bedroom turned him into a lifelong activist. Serge also explains how a pretty odd and funny line about a tapeworm almost caused System of a Down to break up. And why the first time Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine heard System Play, he called it music for crazy people. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Serge
1: Tonkian. Maybe we start by talking about the movie. How did the movie come about? So, the idea originally was in 2011. You know, 2011 is the year that System of a Down started touring again after years of hiatus. And I knew I was going to have an incredibly busy professional year. I was touring with System of a Down, touring with my backup band, the FCC, doing orchestral shows with different orchestras around the world, going to Armenia, protest movements, like doing all this crazy. That year I knew was going to be insane in terms of work. So, I thought, you know what, I should... Uh, Put on a camera on my head like a GoPro and spy glasses and have someone following me the whole time and let's record everything. And I did. But I realized watching the footage after a while that, you know, the idea of a POV film of an artist looking behind the scenes is interesting if the artist can keep their head still. But my head was like a bird, like it was (laughs) impossible to watch. And what is the meaning of all these experiences anyway? There was no narrative, no written theme or script or anything like that. So a friend of mine and I were discussing this, and I had the drives of all the all the footage and He's like, "What are we really trying to say what do you What's the story you want to tell and after discussing you know system of a down, music, art, and all of this it it turned out i mean to me the most interesting story was that of the activist in me and and how Before music and before the success of the band, no small thanks to you, you know, I had a smaller voice and then with the success of the band, my voice became more pronounced uh, and that had its ramifications as well as the fruits of that labor in in terms of seeing things come into fruition.
2: When did you first feel the desire to participate in the culture in this way as an activist?
1: Uh, I was a teenager, Rick, uh, and my grandfather, all my grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide. And their stories were very powerful, you know, how they saw their family perish and and how they survived. And yet the U.S. government hadn't formally recognized the Armenian genocide. And for me, it was like, why are we living with this hypocrisy in a democracy where the government hasn't properly recognized the truth of history of what's happened to my people and to me that made instantly made me an activist because i realized that there are so many other truths out there that are being denied for political expediency economic purposes or for whatever reason that's what it was so i was an activist before becoming an artist
2: yeah it's it's an interesting way in and the point you make about so much of what we're told is not true. You know, it's like uh, there's always a narrative that's, for for our whole lives, we've been presented these series of narratives and the history books that that we were given as kids, probably, you know, 90% of what's in them is not really true. It's a crazy revelation to have. Yeah, But it's interesting that that you took that information and wanted to do something about it. I, I almost have the opposite feeling, it's like, I don't want to do anything. Like, I just, uh, I accept that we're not being told what's
1: going on. That's that's very interesting. And and I, I have that feeling too sometimes, Rick, because you get overwhelmed, you know, on that end. And when you do, you're just like, I just want a musical project to jump into so I can lose myself in it and not think about all these worldly things. So I could just be an artist and, and, and be free again, and then I can gain that battery energy and and love energy and then come back and fight a good fight.
2: Beautiful. It's interesting because also I I feel like the fact that you're taking action, there is some belief in you that you can change something and that's awesome. Thanks, brother. But you've changed a lot of things yourself, you know? In different ways, though, and not on purpose. (laughs) You know, never, it has never happened through wanting to change anything. It's always happened just through wanting to make something good and then, Something changes in reaction to it, but it's never been a, the goal to change anything,
1: I don't think. But isn't that what it is? Like your vision, whatever that vision is, and you following it properly, and you're you're, you're being in tune with it, which I know you've always been, at least as far as i know known you, makes that change. Whether it's music or, or having artists that you work with feeling incre- incredibly comfortable to create the best of what they create. I mean, that's it's a very unique gift that, you know, that, that I'm grateful that you've shared with us. Yeah.
2: Cool, man. Let's talk about music a little bit. First experience of music in your life, what do you remember?
1: First experience of music in my life would be my dad singing in the house. My dad uh, had a wonderful, beautiful voice, still does, and loved singing, uh, musician, but not professionally. And because his dad died when he was really young and he didn't think he could make a living doing music, and so he became a designer, shoe designer, and uh, studied in Milan and, and get, got into that business. But he would sing at home a lot. And in fact, the song that we show in the film that I sing with my dad, the song about the stork, is a song that could be the first song I ever heard when I was really young and him singing it. And I would try to harmonize with him and sing with him. But I think that's the first musical memory that I have as a kid. Did your family speak Armenian in the house or English? Predominantly Armenian.
2: Interesting. So, would you say Armenian would be your f- first language, sort of? Yeah. Wow! Amazing. I
1: never knew that. Yeah. So, I was born in Lebanon, and uh, I was seven when we came over during the Lebanese civil war, and still spoke Armenian. Went to a private Armenian school here in Hollywood. I, I knew a little English when I was a kid, but I, you know, I learned it mostly in in Los Angeles. And it's funny because when you're bilingual or multilingual, I think you always think in your first language. And that can change over time. So now when I speak Armenian, I'm actually thinking in English and speaking in Armenian. Wow. Whereas before I used to think in Armenian and speak in English when I was younger.
2: Really interesting. It also makes sense for some of your lyrical choices have always been, whilst always poetic, sometimes the choice of the order of some of the words is like, hmm, it's... It's unusual, and I'm wondering if that comes from it being a second language,
1: very likely, yeah, yeah, that reminds me I, I remember people, because when we were doing our first record, you, you were talking to me about certain lyrical uh, stanzas, and don't ever get like don't ever get stuck in the sky, and you told me, well, whatever you're on, whether it's pot or whatever, aren't you supposed to be in this sky like you were like going, yeah, but I'm like, yeah, but the way I see it is. Don't ever get stuck in the sky because it's too good. Like that kind of a thing. And so, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's a kind of different way of seeing things. It's a different perspective, I guess. Interesting. So cool. <laughs> so cool.
2: It's, fa- it's fascinating because we know each other so well. I know. And to, to, to talk about <laughs> this stuff, just really interesting. It is. Do you remember your first experience of Western music,
1: of like uh, popular music? I don't remember what's the first popular or western music but i do remember the first records that i ever bought and i was probably seven or eight years old Columbia house had the you know the club where you could join and you get like five or six vinyls for free and then you had to buy one a year or two a year i forgot what it was and i remember being really excited about it and getting those first five records you know i want to say i mean it was 70 probably 76 or 77 right so Rick James was in there, which was awesome <laughs> at the time. Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb, guilty. Like I think about seven, eight records that first year. What else was in there? Not a lot of rock. Maybe Chuck Mangione or something like that. Uh, yeah, trumpet great. player, just different things. Whatever, as a kid that I had heard from my uncle or or someone play. My uncle really loved Stevie Wonder. He would play Stevie Wonder when we were living with them when we first came to the states, and a lot of soul. I remember a lot of soul from the 70s and and disco, obviously. Yeah. Do you remember living in Lebanon as a kid? I have specific visual memories, almost like snapshots because I was young. Mm -hmm. So I remember my grandparents' house where that was, our house, and our little uh, backyard where we used to play. I remember my school, our school that we went to and a couple of other, like the beach and a couple of sceneries. And then I remember the war. And what I remember about the war is, and the war had just started, I remember ducking in our bedroom with my brother because of the bombs falling and school was closed. And that really made a huge impression on me as a child, which translated into my activism as an adult. Because, you know, when we were making that song, Boom, and Michael Moore directed the video, if you remember, yeah, I, I still can't get the feeling out that, dropping bombs is literally on the other side of being if you're hearing those bombs drop it's 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 a terrorizing feeling hearing bombs drop they feel random and they terrorize the population and if you've ever been in that situation of hearing bombs drop you'd be very reluctant to order your own government or anyone to to do that to anyone else
2: how quickly were you able to leave when when that started your family
1: we were lucky. My dad was already planning on us migrating to the to the U.S. and and had uh, done paperwork ahead of time. So we weren't we didn't know obviously before the war started. And so we were lucky. We were we got out pretty early. How long does that process take typically? I wouldn't know. I, years, I would assume, because he had, yeah wow. he had a brother in the you know my uncle lived in New York, and so I think he came visited him, started his our paperwork in terms of you know immigration. And then, um, and then the war broke out, it became more difficult. And, uh, you know, it just, my dad had to come six months after us, we had to come here with our mom. And uh, my dad followed us six months after. Was it only Armenians that were targeted? Oh, no, no. I mean, Armenians weren't specifically targeted. It was a whole civil war between, you know, there were the, uh, Christian Falange movement there were the uh, Shiite movement and there were the Sunnis and it was just complete sectarian war each supported by different pro you know proxy nations from outside and uh, it was it was a mess and and it's still a mess now after that huge bomb that went off last year and I have a friend there and the banking system is all frozen up I mean people with money can't even get you know they can only get a thousand dollars a month out of their bank account, even if they have a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, COVID's bad. And, you know, from what I hear, uh, I've only been to Lebanon once since we left as a kid in 2011, the year that I decided to shoot everything that I was, you know, experiencing. And I took my parents back and they were older when they moved, you know, my brother and I were like four and seven, but they were in their thirties when they moved. So for them, it was a very prolific kind of, you know, experience going back. How
2: uh, i don't I don't know whether the word is tight or cohesive was the Armenian experience in Los Angeles.
1: There are a lot of Armenians in Los Angeles, probably the second largest diasporan community outside of Armenia. Russia would probably be the first, but it's quite close. Those are the two largest um communities um, and that's very interesting geopolitically for me because you've got you know a lot of Armenians in the Russian sphere, and then you've got a lot of Armenians here on polar opposite sides of the political spectrum, you know, uh, between those two nations. But the community, uh, it got bigger over the years. When I came there, there were there were a number of Armenians. It wasn't as big as there is now, like Glendale or Hollywood. But it was nice, you know, having the, you know, especially when you're just learning a language, it's nice having people from your culture around to kind of guide you and, and you know, especially as a kid. But at the same time, we were in mainstream, you know, American culture and growing up in Los Angeles with with all, all that. I remember I remember we lived in Hollywood in the mid-70s, right? And we used to walk to school in Hollywood, you, it, colorful Hollywood, pimps and hookers and all this stuff happening. And my parents, they didn't even, you know, wonder whether we were safe or not. They're like, yeah, grab your brother's hand and walk to school. I was like seven, eight. He was like five. <laughs> And now I'm thinking I would never let my kid walk up the street in Hollywood, you know, or whatever. But like at the time it was it was more laxed, I guess. And and maybe the violence wasn't as pronounced as it is now.
2: Yeah. Does
1: California feel like home? Like if you think of home? California, look majority of my friends and family are in los angeles so you know i i i feel comfortable here but it it does feel more like an office than a home to me i remember hearing you talk to pharrell on on the show i'm a fan of the uh you know broken record podcast and i've been listening to it for a while and uh that really hit home for me because i feel more at home in new zealand lived there part of the year got residency years ago have a nice place there that i'm thankful for and uh but, and and here I feel like it's more, I do have a lot of friends and family, but it feels more of a rat race. It is. <laughs> you know? Would you say that politics were part of System of a Down from the beginning? I guess so. I mean, you know, a band is, you know, a good band, I think, that creates interesting music is always going to be a push and pull of different personalities and different agendas. I think when you have everyone on one page doing one thing, that's cool, because that makes things simpler but i think the music is probably is not as interesting and our band is like that we're we're four distinct personalities with distinct ways of doing things and the political was more my thing because i was an activist before becoming an artist and and luckily i had these guys in my band that would kind of make me go okay you're going too far and and that's good because you know unless the whole thing's got to be political like rage which is awesome because that's what they agreed upon, and, and I think that's amazing. But system was never just political, as you well know, but it was always there, you know, and and, and it's not just me, to be honest. It, the, specifically, Darren, I think, also has a lot of ideas, more social than necessarily political, but, but also challenging the social fabric of society, the, yeah. some of the hypocrisies that are, you know. So I think it was definitely in our, in our DNA as a band from the beginning.
0: We'll be right back with more from Serge Tonkian and Rick Rubin after a quick break.
3: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
3: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
0: We're back with more from Serge Tonkian.
2: What was the scene that system was born
1: into? Like what was going on in LA at the time? That you guys started? When we started, radio wasn't playing our kind of music, definitely. We kind of were in this warehouse in North Hollywood doing our own thing, not knowing what was going on in the musical world outside of us. It was very incubated in that sense. And when we first started playing on the scene, like the Roxy and Whiskey, we were primarily opening up for, you know, anything from an industrial band to other heavy bands out of Los Angeles or Santa Barbara. We had this band, Snot, that we used to play around town with a lot. And, you know, they were very much hardcore slash punk kind of band. And we gravitated because we have definitely a lot of punk ethos to our medley type of rock music. And it kind of really fit. But we didn't know what scene we were a part of until later. We were like, oh, there's corn and Deftones. There's this new metal scene coming out of Los Angeles. And then lucky for us, as we started working together, radio switched formats, like literally at that time. I always say as hard as you work and as creative as you can try to be, there's definitely a matter, a little matter of luck as well to kind of land in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And so that's what was going on. K-Rock wasn't playing our type of music when we started. They switched right when we were about to get that second record out.
2: (laughs) Not only was K-Rock not playing your sort of music, after they switched and after they were playing hard music, the program director said, when hearing system moved down, this is a band that we will never play on our station ever. (laughs) I remember that. When the first album came out. Yeah, so th- that we will never play this band. And then yeah. one year later, System was the number one requested band on the station.
1: Isn't that amazing? And and look, I, you know, again, I'm not on your show to to uh do wax poetic on you, but honestly, like, you know, if it wasn't for your support in those first years of being out there with no radio support and touring opening for Slayer, one of your bands, <laughs> it's, it was amazing like just building that you know, foundation for a band going on tour playing Europe, getting shit thrown at from the Slayer crowd and learning how to handle an audience and boot camp, you know, proper boot camp as 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 artists on the road. And that really built us so that when the second record came and we did and radio did switch formats, we were ready and we actually had a base. So it wasn't some radio band you're introducing into, you know, the community. You know, instead you had this. A, a plethora of fans wanting to hear the music and that was that really kicked in properly
2: yeah and it really all happened naturally i can we, we can't say any of that was actually planned the only plan right. was to make something really good and stick to it you know like make something great and whoever was interested in this great thing we made we wanted them to find out about it i don't think there was ever the idea of converting people who don't like it to like it i remember you know, our friend Tom Morello, the first time I played it for him, he's like, this is crazy person's music. This is music for crazy people. <laughs> it's like uh, it was just so on the fringe <laughs> at the time. And still, I feel like still it, it holds up in how extreme and ridiculous it is. But we get more used to it because it's gotten popular. If you If you took away the popularity... <laughs> it's it's really it's crazy. crazy it is cra- <laughs> it really is
1: tom said he was with you that first day you saw us at the viper room i didn't know that yeah tom was with us i didn't remember that Man. and and when i was talking to him recently he was like oh yeah i was there and i told greg this is nuts this yeah, is crazy
2: yeah. <laughs> But it was really fun and i just as as i've told you before i just remember
1: laughing the whole show you were laughing. I, I, I remember seeing you sitting on one of those booths, you know, up on top of the booth, because there were so many heads in the audience and Viper Room's a tiny place. Yeah. And I just remember seeing you laughing. And I and, and it's a positive encouragement that, you know, it's like, that's cool. It was super po- I mean, it was a
2: positive... It, it's a funny thing doing, um, you know, kind of uh, screaming, uh, somewhat questionable lyrics... And how that can be interpreted as this positive like unity experience and it it was you know it really was it felt like there was great solidarity in the audience people were getting what they needed at that show and the band was just great
1: no that was fun i remember talking to you after we went outside and we were so enthused that you were there bro like so excited if you look at system of a down it's an established band now and whatnot but Like you said, it was this crazy man's music just going off and these weird lyrics. I might've even had a distortion pedal feeding back on stage, which is like, who the fuck wants to sign that, right? Like, you know, and and here you were checking us out. And uh, I remember, oh, Guy, Siri, and Bino were friends. Yeah. So Guy had called saying, oh, Rick's coming, but we're running late or something. And we're like, we looked at, we we gotta delay the show. Like we gotta wait for it
2: to come. Were you guys wearing paint?
1: I don't remember. Were we?
2: I don't, I can't remember either. It's, it's all a blur, but I mean,
1: I've seen you guys wear paint. When did, when did that start? The, the, uh, the paint? That's a good question. It was early on, obviously. Um, and, yeah. and it was very much, uh, Darren and Chavor were huge Kiss fans and they were really into the whole oh. makeup and, and craziness and colorfulness of that. And, uh, you know, so I, that was their influence completely. And, um, It was pretty early on. I don't know if it was from the first show or not. I mean, first, you know, uh, run of shows on the Strip or not.
2: It felt more tribal than it did like Kiss, like what I saw. Mine was
1: tribal. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) But I remember also like the, uh, what looked like Armenian folk dancing while playing these essentially heavy metal songs.
1: Yeah, I mean... That's what it is. I mean, that's that's kind of the sound of System of a Down. That It brings our kind of filtered Armenian experience into heavy music uh, in a way that doesn't copy either and just kind of becomes its own thing. That includes rhythms, that includes weird solos and, and whatnot. And harmonies. I
2: feel like the harmonies really feel like they're rooted in, they, they don't sound like the harmonies that you hear in any other... Uh, hard music it, it does feel like it's rooted in an ancient folk
1: yeah a lot of thirds like greek and armenian mediterranean harmonies yeah darren and i for sure and and our voice really match our, our ranges and our voice really match in a very unique way and that's that was from day one you know before system we used to have a band called soil which was a way more progressive and nutty like just kind of un- <laughs> how can it be <laughs> way more progressive what does that sound like Almost unlistenable like <laughs> no, not unlistenable, but it was it was just think of every system song, but being more just crazier like uh, not crazier, but how do I say it less pop format, right in terms of the format it was just go on and on, but it was a good learning experience It was the first time I had ever sang in a band, and that was eight months the whole band was just around. We had one show where Darren fell off the stage and he stuck. <laughs> And he still does that, so uh, you know, yeah, um, it was it was interesting. But that was a good experience because I didn't know what I was doing as a vocalist. I mean, for me, it was always trying to make a sound with my voice. To me, singing was two different, separate things. Trying to get the words in there, and sometimes there were a lot of words, and I had to get them in there because as a as a as someone who wrote poetry, it was important to get the words in there. So I wasn't thinking, "Does this sound right to someone?" singing i was more like i gotta get these words in there it doesn't matter how fast i go with the right and two to try to make sounds with the voice like it's a guitar or a synth or something like that very dada-esque kind of interpretation um and also create relationships between things that don't have a pre-existing relationship with each other whether it's musical parts going from one part to another Or lyrical words that don't belong together. Terracotta pie, you know, banana terracotta pie. What the fuck is that, right? Um, We still don't know what that is.
2: (laughs) But how did, talk about banana terracotta pie. You had to get the words in.
1: Tell me, how did you decide those are the words you had to get in? I don't remember. I I remember writing the song on acoustic guitar and just kind of playing it fast. and, And just trying to, you know, I was trying to sing whatever I was playing. And I was just like, banana, 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 but it it turned out to be banana, terracotta, 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 terracotta. And I remember, dude, I remember your first reaction when we were working on that song, on the demos of that song. You're just like, what the, what is that? Like, it was like, it wasn't a compliment. You were just like, "I, I don't know what this is. Like, but once we were done with it, you were like, yeah, this is really it. good. We have to keep it. This is really... And I found that to be interesting because uh, it's challenging. Some of it is challenging, I think. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All of
2: it. I mean, I feel like I learned so much about music working with you guys because it was so far out and broke so many accepted rules. And the mission was, okay, taking into account, it's going to break these rules. How do we still achieve what's something that we could listen to and have this like i don't want to call it accessibility because it's not it's uh by nature it's not understandable so how can we present it where it's the most understandable while retaining that it can never be understood
1: <laughs> that was like that was like a quantum theory formula right there it was that was our work. Yeah, that was our work. But I, I also learned a lot from you. I still to this day, bro, when I do vocals, I hear you in my head going, pronounce it better. Pronounce it better. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> don't chew those words, pronounce it better. I mean, there's times where you want to throw away words, you, you know, but yeah, a lot, a lot in terms of how you hear things. And I love how you basically eat music and then interpret it from almost a fan's perspective as a producer, really get into it and love it, love it, love it. And then know what the best thing about it is kind of, you narrow it down to that one strong foundation and then you want to hear that more or, or you give ideas where that's more pronounced. And I, I think that's really special.
2: Yeah. It's, I definitely am into the idea of like putting a focus on the thing that speaks the most and because it can it can get lost, so the job is to like think about where the spotlight is shining while all these things are going on at the same time. How do we keep this this one aspect in focus when we need to, and then how to sw- and when to switch right. the focus to this other thing to focus on and um, giving everything its turn. Talk about the um, the fr- the vocal phrasing in the verses of Chop Suey.
1: Is, wake up, grab you know just kind of going with that neurotic kind of you know attacky music and stop the it's the pauses that make it interesting and it's 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 hard to do live because i literally have to l- listen to john so i could be syncopated with him and he looks at my body motion so i try to go left and right so he knows like it's kind of like we have to be on the same page i don't know i don't know how that came about it's it's probably my naivete Going, I don't know what to do here, so I'm going to do exactly what the d- guitars are
2: doing. But how did you? And I remember us talking about it, and I i didn't understand it at the time about you doing like the responses, also. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the whispered responses. Yes. <laughs> Which sounds so creepy. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, again, I don't remember. It's, you know, it's been quite a number of years, a couple of decades, yeah. right? But hey, congratulations because, to, uh, Toxicity or I want to say was it chop suey? I think chop suey was voted by metal hammer best metal song of the 20th century. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Big accolade. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I never studied singing. I had no idea what I was doing. So for me, it was a sound. And if the guitars can do it, then my voice can do it, you know, so it was trying to match that which is irregular. I mean, someone who's learned how to sing is never going to do that, knowing they can't properly repeat it every day, every night, which is a pain in the butt, right? But but I think that's what's beautiful about art and about exploration, about not being, a, you know, walking into something and just being creative, not knowing, not having previous experiences of it because I think that exploratory nature can can really lead to something new. Uh, it's the reason I started painting a number of years ago, because again, I didn't know what I was doing. I got into it and I feel that same kind of feeling of lost and and losing time and just doing something without knowing what the results are going to be. And and that kind of what I felt when I first started doing music.
2: Amazing. I want to talk a little more about lyrics just because it's it's such a, interesting part of what you do i love the way you sing but the lyrics of this whole other thing it's like it's radical do you remember the drama over the tapeworm
1: song (laughs) yes (laughs) how can i how can i forget that okay so originally the song the chorus was pull the tapeworm out of my ass Right. As I recall, yes. Darren and Chavo didn't like my ass, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, no, 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 that doesn't sound cool. That sounds bad. That sounds vulnerable or whatever it was, you know, whatever word you want to use uh, as an adjective. And I'm like, you know, what I'm trying to say is philosophical. Like, you know, take this negativity out of me or whatever at the time I was trying to portray. And they're like, no, 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 that's not cool. We don't want to be in a band. Where it's
2: your, you know, I felt like it seemed like the band could have broke up (laughs) over the lyric, like it was so extreme. Yeah, but it it talks. It speaks to the passion in the band. Like there's real passion. It's amazing. (laughs) I mean, the fact that a lyric, an insignificant, one word, one word, and arguably comical line, totally, is enough to potentially break up a band. (laughs) <laughs> or or discard a great song. There was another possibility. It was like, well, right. that song just goes away.
1: And all we had to do is change it to your. <laughs> yes. Pull the tapeworm out of your ass. It My became your. Yeah. And then in the middle part where I'm singing nicely, pull the tapeworm out of me. They were okay with that. Yeah.
2: And it's really beautiful when you get to that. It's like you're, you're part of the, you become part of the community. It's like it goes from this.
1: The ass tapeworm community. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> y-
2: y- like you, 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 and then it's like, and and me. me. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I'm curious from your point of view, since you were there and yeah. you saw that. Like, what was your reaction? You, you probably thought these guys are fucking nuts. They're, it's like number <laughs> one is one word, and and what the? Why are they arguing over this?
2: It wasn't obvious that it was one word. That was like when when that got decoded. Right. When we realized it wasn't pull the tapeworm ass problem when we realized it was pull the tapeworm out of my ass problem. My ass,
1: yeah.
2: And that when you said my ass, it represented everybody in the band's ass <laughs> and, and everybody wasn't comfortable with that. And now, you, you know, you could essentially be saying pull the tapeworm out of your ass to the rest of the band. Right. And they're okay with it. <laughs> It's fascinating.
1: I don't think you've done any broken record podcasts and used the word ass in so many minutes at all. (laughs) uh, We broke a record today. But yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, with with all of the like, you know, prison song with like all that stuff that's written and very kind of essay form. And we didn't have any arguments about that. But that one tape word, you know, it's and it's funny. The, The other thing about it is that it's clearly funny. We were all pissed off and you were laughing the whole time. So yeah,
2: it was funny. But but yes, it does have like a bigger meaning, I understand. But they weren't upset with the bigger meaning. It was purely the language and
1: it was a very funny line. It's kind of funny because I think it's the metal attitude versus the non-metal attitude as well. So for me, I like showing vulnerability in our music, in whatever I do. I, I don't mind showing it because I think as an artist you're vulnerable either way, you either show it or you don't. Yeah. You know. But the metal attitude is no way, dude. Like, you know, no way, we're metal, right? You know, you can't show vulnerability, you know, that kind of a thing. I think that's what it was more than anything else.
2: I feel like there's a way in the future to lean into exactly what you're saying and the fact that there's that difference. And when I think of the example, you, you talk about prison song and the way the chorus works, pushing little children, with their f- fully automatics, full, semi-automatics? That, that's,
1: fully, that's not the prison song. The prison song is oh. they tried to build a prison. They, oh, oh, they oh, oh a prison. okay. I'm confused. They, uh, pushing little oh, yeah. children
2: is... I never know titles, ever. <laughs> I forget them myself. Don't worry. What are the lines? Pushing little children...
1: With their fully automatics, they like to push the weak around.
2: Right. So you're singing that from this place of compassion, or your compassion makes you angry. Right. And... Darren's character joins in for push the week around and he, so he's doing the the authoritarian side of the story. And like you said earlier, the, the thing that makes a band great is those difference. It's not, it's not everybody unified on the same message. It's those different messages and how they bump up against each other to make something really interesting. I'd never thought of
1: it this way before until we were having this conversation. But it's an interesting dichotomy. The reason you said prison song is that same thing exists in there because Darren comes in with, I, uh, what was it? I buy my crack, I smack my bitch right here in Hollywood, which is playing into the negativity. Yes. <laughs> where, where the lyrics are talking about the injustice of the, you know, three strike law, the prison system, the rac- racist policies that endure. And and he comes in as the guy, like yes, he's he does playing the, same character. Thing in the foil. Yeah, blast off. We, you know, it's party time. We don't live in a fascist nation, whatever. Like, it's 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 a character uh, kind of por- portrayal back and forth, which is interesting. I never even thought of it this way until you just brought it up right now.
2: Yeah, same. The same thing existed in Public Enemy, where Chuck D was always really serious, and Flavor Flav was the foil, and sometimes he was the comic foil, but sometimes it was just like a different point of view, like calm down, Chuck, you know, like sometime it was, it was just like another perspective. Yeah. And together it was, it's like, I don't know that public enemy would have done what it did without the foil. It made it less finger shaking, you know, totally. And people, people don't like having fingers shaked at them. Nobody, even if, even if they like what you're saying, they don't like
1: that. No, you know, I think you either have to make them dance, you have to make them laugh. I've realized this doing this for a few decades or so is you have to entertain while you get that message out, because otherwise, you know, you're just giving a speech and that's not very exciting. And, and it's not going to get very far. I say it in the movie. It's like in, in 2015, when we played Armenia for the first time, those words came out of me where I said what I needed to say politically on stage. And then I said, we're here to tell you the truth and rock you at the same time. And I think that's the magic.
2: Yeah. It's interesting also how you, you could lyrically have deadly serious lyrics right next to really zany, wacky lyrics and make it work.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's Dada-esque, very Zappa-esque. And, you know, it, it is cool. I, again, I like that kind of, I think Darren does too. I, I think that's where we get along creatively is finding relationships between things that, that are, don't have a common relationship. Like, wow, if we can make these two things work together, we've never heard that before. That's really interesting experiment and take it to the next level. I'm
0: going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Serge Tonkian. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, job's got a worker for that.
3: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com/unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com/unconventionalawards. See you there. Willie
0: Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christofferson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? One place, the Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer, and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at Audible.com/slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Serge Tonkian.
2: Let's talk about the the three years between the first album and Toxicity. What that ride was like? Touring, touring, touring.
1: I remember the only radio we even had on the first record was Jed the Fish played Sugar on his specialty show and I got to hear it in the car and I was like, wow, dream come true. I heard our song on the radio kind of thing, but there was not a lot of radio on the first, uh, you know, record. And it was a lot of touring. We were on tour with Slayer in Europe and then the U S and then we did a bunch of Ozfest shows and a bunch of other shows, small, you know, uh, shows and just getting out there for people to really experience our music opening for bands and kind of doing the do. That's that's the foundation. And and I remember those those days. They were not easy because you know, we're traveling in you know, RVs that broke down, that in yeah. the middle of the night we had to climb fences and find a phone. There were no cell phones at the time. And there were a lot of tough times, but we remember them fondly because that was the beginning of this whole incredible experience. I, I remember at one point, you know, we were we were in an RV and John would drive a lot because he was responsible. <laughs> you didn't want Darren driving. Um, Shavo would drive. He was he was good. Um, but I remember Darren and I were sleeping on this RV bed. And I, I guess we were about to hit something. And, and John must have slammed on the brakes. And I remember Darren grabbing me. I was flying in the air. Wow. And he just grabbing me. Wow. You know, there's just these incredible... Experience, experiences that you can't forget—funny ones, crazy yeah. ones.
2: Talk about Slayer's audience a little bit. What was Slayer's audience like? Oh my god! <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I know that Allison Chains has opened for Slayer. All these bands have opened for Slayer, and their their audiences hate everyone but Slayer, right? <laughs> everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're rock or. And that was the phase where we were like makeup. Darren had his little. <laughs> like uh, glam toys on him. And it was, it was the worst thing you could do to Slayer fans. It was like, it was just like you were getting ready for them to kill you. I remember at one point we started, a sh- we started a show with uh, Sweet Pea, which is a heavy song, but funny and funky. We got booed. And I remember Darren going, oh, you like that song. We're going to play it again. And we played it again. <laughs> it was like, we were learning how to take the attitude and, and, you know, not to get upset and and have fun with it. I remember playing in Poland and we were being killed by these coins. They were throwing coins at us as we were performing because, because there was another band, the Polish death metal band that played after us. And we were the direct support who are these fucking clowns to, you know, get a better position in, you know, before Slayer than, and of course, we were on tour with Slayer the whole time. And uh, so we were getting pelted. And at one point, and this is like, must have been 98, 99. So it wasn't far back that Poland was part of the Soviet Union. And and there were like swastikas. There was like shit going on, right? Like crazy shit. Like they were threatening us and all this stuff, pelting us. And at one point I got so angry, I told the lighting guy to turn the lights on the audience I saw the guy that pelted me last and I just started cussing at him and yelling at him with the lights on the audience. Rick, you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone went silent. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen on tour because I exercised authority. Wow. And authority was something that they had just gotten out of. Yeah. And when I exercised that authority from stage, they froze and it scared the shit out of me. And I go... Okay, I think we're done guys and we walked out just feeling really weird just just interesting stuff that you learn playing in different countries with different cultures you yeah. know I've toured with different orchestras around the world for example no orchestra plays the same every orchestra yeah. plays based on their cultural idioms based on how they see Italians for example best soloists in the world together not so good. It's just the culture. It's just the culture. Yes. Russians play like boom. When when the conductor does this, it's down like ev- all at the same time. It's just, it's so interesting seeing cultures play the same piece of music completely differently. How different are the audiences? The audiences are quite diverse, you know, both for System and, and my own solo stuff. The The orchestral shows are interesting because you'll see older people and you'll see... You know, people in a system of down t-shirt in their twenties, and wanting to rock. You know, it's like this weird combination. And I think with system, there's a little more male demographic, I'd say, than female. But um, you know, it's it's quite interesting. But but the age is quite. Well, you see kids and dads going together to concerts. I love seeing that. I really really love seeing that. Okay, so today's the first day. I'm I'm driving my son to our relatives' house, and. I decided, I'm like, have you listened to, you know, death metal? And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, good. So I played him Slayer for the first time today. Wow. I played him the band Death and uh, he really loved it. He was like, <laughs> it just, you know, and I'm like, it's just so, so interesting, you know? The energy. Yeah, This just an energy. The energy, you know, yeah. can feel it. And I ask, what do you like about this? Do you like the drums? Do you like the guitars? I, like you said, I like both. You know, I play him Tom Waits. I play him everything, obviously, because, you know, it's like food. If yeah. they learn from a young age to eat everything, they, they won't want mac and cheese for the rest of their life.
2: It's interesting before you talked about how the luck and the improbability of things that either work for you or against you, what are the odds that Toxicity came out the week of September 11th? Like, wh- wh- how is that possible? And to have the number one album in the country when that happened
1: it's just surreal it's incredibly surreal you know with a song whose chorus was uh trust in my self-righteous suicide i cry when angels deserve to die you know it's like completely surreal yeah when people talk about the record i mean i remember our recording sessions and stuff but the majority of my memories have to do with the stress of the release because right before we released it we held a first of all we held a, f- a free show in hollywood right behind the roosevelt hotel you remember and we were expecting 3 4000 people and fifteen, twenty thousand 20000 people showed up and it became you know the fire marshal came down and said you can't play the show they closed the show police threatened to arrest us if we got on stage to play a song because there were no specific entries the barriers were incorrect or whatever and it was so tenuous. It was so stressful. And I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I gathered the guys that day and I'm like, let's get arrested. This will be perfect. <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> <laughs> let's go for it. And then, and then our lawyer goes, overheard and said, everyone here is going to sue you yeah. if you go up there and the fire marshal has closed it, he, whether they arrest you or not. Like, don't, you know? He's like, don't. And it was just crazy. And then there was the riot. You know, like there was an L.A. riot before the release of Toxicity because the show that we were supposed to play, we even said, like, let us go play one song and just announce we'll redo the show because obviously there's too many people. This is not, you know, they wouldn't let us. I mean, it was so myopic in in retrospect. It was of LAPD and, and not allowing us to at least calm down the crowd. Yeah, canceling the show made everybody go crazy. They made everyone go crazy. They attacked our crew, and equipment went everywhere. And police came in with horses, and it was—it's just a mess. And then watching all of that on the news, I'm feeling—you know—even though we did all we could, but but those were our fans. Those are people that wanted to hear our music. It was wrong, you know, that that happened. Anyway, so toxicities really started with that. Then, of course, September 11. Um, on September 12, I posted an essay called "Understanding Oil," which was my way of understanding how something like this could happen. And it spoke about 50 years of US foreign policy, the need for multilateralism in terms of how we deal with this issue, not unilateralism like it was with going after Iraq, a country that had, for example, nothing to do with 9-11. But at the time they were making these ties and a lot of people felt that that was wrong. And we had the protests before the Iraq war, the Michael Moore video. All I remember is, this incredible stress, Uh, oh, we were on, uh, I had to defend myself on the Howard Stern Show.
2: Remember that? I really remember. I remember calling Howard before because Howard was ready to really
1: attack. Yeah.
2: And I called him and I said, these are good guys. And uh, keep in mind, you're getting one side of a story. Their intentions are good. They mean good. You know, it was a really like a positive call, and he's like, "Okay, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll listen to what he says." But it was, it really could have, it could have gone the other way. You know, like it uh, yeah. really could have.
1: Oh, oh, we had calls, you know, coming in and death threats and all sorts of stuff with the band. I remember, and mind you, we're on tour the week after September 11 with all those additional, you know, red and 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 orange like danger, there might be more terrorist attacks and we're in front of 15, 20,000 people at night, you know, (laughs) scary, man. It was really, really scary and stressful. I remember the band got me in a room and they're like, what are you doing? Are you trying to get us killed? I'm like, but it's the truth. And they're like, yeah, so what, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, like you're a smart guy. What are you doing? You know? And, and I always say, I was naive to think, That the truth, being the truth, was the most important thing. And I'm still that naive. In other words, I haven't changed. It's just who I am. Have any of your ideas or beliefs or
2: thoughts changed over the course of your life? Like something that you really believed firmly in
1: and that now you might think differently or opposite? I don't know if I think of anything that's completely opposite, but... I definitely have changed, you know, over
2: time. What's evolved? What's ev- What's Think of something that's really evolved, let's say.
1: So my worldview, I think, I, I came from a very small community. Armeni- the Armenian population of the planet is 6 million people, 7 million people, right? And so I came from that small kind of idea and community and, and caring for that community. And then seeing over time, over these last 20 number, whatever years traveling the world, you know, due to touring and and, and seeing that we're all living that same experience, right? That injustice is everywhere, corruption is everywhere, whether it's hidden between an oligarchic regime or with K Street lobbying firms in Washington, D.C., you know, which is legalized corruption. It's everywhere. So seeing some of the same common denominators around the world and at the same time people's goodwill around the world that I think that's what's changed the most about me is developing from an ethnocentric artist activist to a universal kind of probably I've never even thought about this but I guess that would be it
2: yeah it's beautiful yeah I, I tend to think of people being good and systems being bad <laughs>
1: you know <laughs> that's, that's a perfect way of putting it
2: yeah did, um, you talked about growing up in this small community, did all of the band members have a similar experience growing up, would you
1: say? Similar? Um, I'm sure it's quite a little different. But yeah, I mean, growing up, we we all grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, John's originally from Toronto, born in Lebanon. Shabba was the only one of us that was born in Armenia, but he was really young. I think he was three when his migrated to the US. So we all grew up in the community, we went to different schools. But at one point, three out of four of us went to the same Armenian private school that's in, in the film. And, um, they were younger than me, Shavo and Darren. So they remember me. I don't remember them from that time, but obviously later. So there are these interesting pre system of a down experiences that we can all relate to like teachers that three out of four of us knew and would laugh at just, you know, mentioning like these interesting common experiences I think being in the community definitely somehow brought us together as artists who had different musical experiences, but a very common community experience. It's
2: it's interesting also that living in Los Angeles and making music, you could conceivably play with anyone and you all chose to do it within this community. It, it's just interesting. It's interesting. It, is. Um, it, it feels like it limited your choices in terms of who to play with.
1: Right. Well, it's funny the way it happened is I was playing keyboards in this one band that we did like kind of alternative music in Armenian and English. And we were rehearsing in Burbank or North Hollywood somewhere. And I was just their keys guy. And there was another band that was sharing the studio with us. And it was a number of Armenian guys and non-Armenian guys as well. Actually it was a combination. And they just got Darren to come in as their guitarist. Like they needed a good guitar, so they got there. And he was young. He was like 16 or 17. So he started playing with them. And him and I, I remember, okay, so remember Waco, Texas, when David Koresh had the whole thing, right? Yes. How could we forget that, right? So when that happened, I helped write a song that Darren contributed to. Called Waco Jesus, and it's the first time I ever sang on a recording. Wow! So here I am from this band, but I wrote the song for our singer in that band to sing, and he wasn't around, so I ended up singing it myself. And Darren contributed as well and played on it. That's when him and I really met and started kind of playing around with ideas, musical ideas. And we realized a lot of the guys we were jamming with, they were like, you know, into girls and drinking and having fun, and him and I were really like into more philosophical ideas of music and, and understanding things, and and he was serious. We were both somehow we connected as lifers, as they say, right? Yeah. And and I remember Darren playing acoustic guitar and us singing our first harmony. And like you said, something was special about that. And I don't even know if that song was ever became a song or whatever. It was just something. And that's how that's how we started. And then Shavo was a friend of Darren's, and Shavo came in to manage us. <laughs> you know, and he was a guitarist, not a bassist, but he's, you know, Darren was like, this guy really understands my musical mind. And I think he should work with us kind of thing. And so Shavo became our bassist. And yeah, it, it was like, it was all natural, although we're, we're, we're all from the same community, but there was something very organic that led each other to each other. And in 2015, when we played Armenia for the first time, man, I'm telling you, I remember right before the show when we did our little band huddle, I was really calm. It felt like the band was created to play that one show and everything we had experienced in the middle was designed so that we could be there that day. It felt like this culmination of history coming, bringing us to that point, it felt so special. Incredible.
2: And it's not just your history or the band history, but it's the culture, it's the history of that culture. Coming together. Yeah. And and coming back from the other side of the world to to fly a flag of art to bring people together. I feel like I'm gonna start crying talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah,
1: yeah man. It was unbelievable and, and, and it felt incredible. Honestly, I am really, really grateful for you being on this road with us, this journey it's meant the world to me and, and, you know, learning from you and, and being your friend. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for where I, where we're at.
2: It is my honor to be in service <laughs> to you, sir. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go. Wipe tears <laughs> out <of my> <laughs> Great seeing you, man.
1: Great to see you.
0: Thanks to Serge Tonkian for talking music and activism with Rick. To hear a playlist of our favorite songs from Surge and System of a Down, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com, where you can also find a playlist Surge put together of some of his favorite tunes. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash podcast, where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia Bell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. peace.
3: Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.